going to your butt. I'm, of course, surprised that a story had such an immediate and profound effect upon radio listeners. Hooey pleases the boobs a great deal more than sense. Whoa, it's us! We're in a lot of trouble! In politics, man must learn to rise above principle. What the hell are we doing here? We are behaving the way a superpower ought to behave. Well, our behavior has produced some crappy results. What we're witnessing now is the failure of the state. It is a death struggle for our republic. Giving voice to liberty in our time. Good evening and welcome to the Joey Clark Radio Hour. Special edition of the show. We've got another call-in interview, but we have two guests this evening. Anthony Davies and James Harrigan. They are the co-hosts of a great podcast, newly popular podcast, Words and Numbers. But they're also doctors, professors in their own right. Anthony Davies is an economist and speaker from Pennsylvania. He's Dr. Davies is an associate professor of economics at Duquesne University. And James Harrigan teaches in the Department of Political Economy and Moral Science at the University of Arizona. Both these gentlemen have been published all over the place in reputable media outlets and written many books. They're brilliant men in their podcast, Words and Numbers, is uh, great to learn from each and every week. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome on James and Anthony. How are you two gentlemen this evening? Well, well thanks, thanks for having us. Well, it's it, great, Joey. Thanks for, thanks for having us. Yeah, it is uh, good to have you both. And it sounds like our, our phone system is working. I'm working with primitive radio equipment up here. Uh, not any of this newfangled computer technology, but we're going to make it work. But seriously, guys, I, I think this radio board I'm working through right now is older than I am. By a few years, so well, it's less likely to fail than our high tech stuff. <laughs> well, I want to begin um, because y'all begin your podcast. You're taking on news and current events every week, but I like how y'all begin your podcast before jumping into the meat of whatever topic you choose by talking about something interesting. And something new and interesting. Well, I think it's interesting. James never does. <laughs> Anthony's the most boring person I've ever met. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I want to start off with this. This caught my eye. Y'all heard about the SpaceX launch that happened maybe a week and a half ago or so? Um, right. I think the main cargo was an Indonesian communication satellite, but riding shotgun, piggybacking on the launch was an Israeli moon lander. And there was mystery over what exactly was in that cargo along with the moon lander, and it turns out it's something called a lunar library, a 30-million-page archive of all known human knowledge. That's quite something. Etched into a DVD-sized metal disc, and the idea is that even if we perish here on this Earth, maybe intelligent life forms billions of years from now could discover the extent of human knowledge as of 2019. thought that was fascinating. Yeah, no, I did too, and, and having that on the moon will make me feel so much better as I try to sleep at night, <laughs> knowing that if, if something terrible happens to the electrical grid, all we have to do is rebuild everything and get to the moon <laughs> to relearn everything we want to do. So it should, it should work out perfectly. <laughs> yeah, it puts me at ease, too. That, all we got to do is rebuild it. Yeah, that's all we got to do. Um, no problem. 
but I, this is part of why I love y'all's show. It, it's candid, um, it's quick-witted, and so I kind of want to start this off for the sake of my audience here, uh, getting to know you both. Number one, how did you two meet each other? That's a good way to start. Well, I was putting together a weekend seminar for some of my students at Duquesne, and I needed a political philosopher, the fellow that I had contracted with back out at the last minute. So I called up the people who were organizing this thing. I said, for God's sake, give me a political philosopher. And they said, do you know James Harrigan? I said, no, I don't know this guy. They said, well, he's at St. Vincent College, blah, blah. Well, it turns out he was like five miles down the road from where I live. So I met him, and that was whatever it was, 10, 15 years ago. And we've been fast friends ever since. Nice. I like, I like to tell people that really Ant was running this conference at the college I worked at. So really what he needed was somebody who had the keys to the front door. And that, <laughs> that's how I ended up meeting Anthony. And we have. We've been fast friends ever since. We started working together, I think, within a week or two of that event. Haven't stopped since. Well, and I love finding a friend. And even if you're only a weekend, a month in, it's like you've known them forever. It's like, yeah, yeah, that's right. The whole idea of soulmates. Now, I want to say real quick before we keep going, James, you're coming in loud and clear. Anthony, there's a bit of an echo going on whenever you speak. There it is. Is that any better? Uh, no, I'm still hearing it. I'm not sure. All right. <laughs> no, technical. Well, the funny thing is, I can, I can hear a bit of an echo on my side. It's me. How about that? Is that any better? Yeah, that's much better. Okay. There we go. Yeah, there it is. Now loud and clear. Um, so... I really like this idea, though, of teaching. Maybe in another life, I, maybe in this life, I'll do it later. Uh, but I like to think sometimes on the radio I do that. Would you rather teach and speak to, say, adults, old, or adults, certain people of a certain age, or, say, young adults, like high school seminars and college kids? Is there something unique about that experience of talking to young people coming up that's, well, worthwhile? Yeah, I think there's a bit of both, you know, I, and it, they're, they're different sorts of audiences. Um, you know, with the older people, they have experience, they have some intuitions that the young people don't. So you can say different things. Uh, but but it's, it's interesting to see the young kids' eyes light up when you say something that at first glance they think is just, it can't possibly be right. And then you explain to them and, and you see this, this awakening as if they're realizing there's this huge world out there that they had never thought about. Right, and there's not, it's almost, it's not quite a blank slate, but they're still open to something new, I suppose. Yeah, one of the big things I find with economics, there's less of a task of teaching people things than there is of unteaching people things. Mm. Because so many people have come to just believe things that simply aren't true. You know, things like simple things like, well, you raise the minimum wage, people are better off. Well, it turns out that's not necessarily the case. Exactly, and I mean, it's uh, it's complicated it's seeing the unseen. It's sort of backing up right. and realizing that money isn't just grown on trees, and it, it's there's a whole process to this. And after I graduated from Auburn University with a political science degree, I realized I had this glaring blind spot. The biggest issue of that day, and you know, after the 08 crash, was the economic system. And I realized I haven't done anything to teach myself so i started reading a lot of the austrian economist and through some self-study i'm by no means uh, an economist but it helped me kind of orient myself and learn from folks like you two it's interesting joey because right now i don't know if you realize this but we're actually on the road going to high schools talking at uh, i think five or six high schools in a row 
and it's really kind of fascinating to see that the, the eyes light up. So I don't know if I like teaching more on the high school level or doing the podcast or teaching at a college, but wrap them all together, life is pretty good. Right, and I mean, it's almost anywhere you get the opportunity. Uh, like, if you have an audience, let, let's throw it out there. Now, I kind of want to get into the meat of this. We jumped right into it. Uh, this idea that people think that it's the great Ronald Reagan line. They know so much that just isn't so. And one, yes. of, one of the stories about our times, that it first begins with this, is that things were better in the past. For the, for the average everyman, for the middle class, the working class, things were better off you know, 100 years ago, 50, 60 years ago, and, and then the story progresses from there. But y'all have actually addressed this issue of the so-called good old days. Yeah, we have. And the interesting thing is you ask everybody who says, geez, things used to be so much better. If you ask those people, would you go back in time to live that? Every one of them will say no. And Anthony's going to hit you with the data on this one. But, but intuitively, we all know the correct answer. We did an episode recently on words and numbers of life 100 years ago. So just to give you a few interesting things, 100 years ago, the average American took home after taxes about 20 cents an hour compared to, let's talk about not the average worker today, who's like around almost $20 an hour, but the average minimum wage worker full-time takes home about six bucks. And you know, we talk today about, well, the minimum wage worker, they don't earn a living wage, so on and so forth. So stop for a moment and compare the average full-time minimum wage worker at 725 an hour, not 15, 725 an hour, to the average middle class worker 100 years ago. And what you find is, yes, they're earning more, but if you compare that to the prices of goods, the average minimum wage worker today is way better off than the average middle class worker of 100 years ago. I'll give you just one thing. Um, talk about a car. 100 years ago, the average middle class worker had to work three years and 10 months straight to earn enough to buy a car. Today, our 725 an hour worker has to work two years. Wow. And so sub substantially better. And I'd imagine the car is better, too, today. <laughs> oh, yeah, that doesn't even count the fact that the car today comes with air conditioning, stereo, safety equipment. You know, the car of 100 years ago basically went from point A to point B if you were lucky, and that was it. Right. And it's almost like on every measure we're better off. There was a slight discrepancy in housing, like the minimum wage worker today. It takes them longer to afford a house than the average worker 100 years ago, but... Y'all made the point again well, that things are better. Well, it, it does it, until you realize that the average house 100 years ago didn't have electricity, didn't have running water, um, you know, didn't have insulation, all of these things that we just take for granted today. So if you, if you were to compare apples to apples, what you would probably find is basically a roof with four walls today, which is what they, they had 100 years ago, is cheaper than a roof with four walls 100 years ago. Right. And it's just, it's baffling to me because you started off, this is common sense for most people. Would you rather live today or a hundred years ago? But let's, yeah. let's enter, let's steel man this position a little bit. People will kind of idealize, say, the post-war era in the 50s and the 60s. Like, where do you think, I guess what I'm asking is, where do you think this good old days thinking comes from? If we had to be charitable to folks who throw this out there. Oh, to be charitable, I think it's a tremendous form of nostalgia. 
right? And everybody has this. This is why disco music came back. It was pretty bad the first time, but it's nostalgia. It had a hell of a half-life. And I think everybody looks back to a certain time in their lives when they're in their early 20s, late 20s, and they think, wow, those, those were the days. Right. It's uh, it's like an old Penn Jillette joke. He says, tell me your favorite album and the greatest album of music of all time, and you can't say any album within five years of losing your virginity. It's just not allowed. <laughs> right. yeah, most, most people are going to come up empty on that. And if you tell me your favorite album, I'll probably be able to tell you within plus or minus three years when you graduated high school. Exactly. It's something so, about that. It's crucial to your life and how you grew up. Right. You know, when I think about these things, and I think about these things a lot, the best answer I ever heard to the question, if you could live at any point in human history, when would it be? The best answer I ever got was any time after the invention of anesthesia. <laughs> there you go. And, and that's telling. But I think you know, one of the things, it's not just nostalgia, you know, particularly young people today, the only thing they know about life in the 1950s is, you know, the older people saying, well, life was much better back then, or old movies or old TV shows, which, of course, you look at, you know, the Brady Bunch and the house they lived in. Back in the day, you know, Michael Brady was an upper middle class to rich person. Right. He's not, you know, what we would look at today is, well, that's a middle class individual. Well, that's not the case. What's What's been happening... What's reported six children, a wife, that's right. and a dog. That's right, all on his one salary. What's happened is over time, we have become so ungodly rich, even the poorest of us, that we've forgotten what true poverty is. So I, I give you one number to think about. Um, we talk about the 1% and how you know they have all the wealth and so forth. But we talk about the 1% within the context of the United States only. Open it up to the entire planet and ask, who are the 1% globally adjusted for differences in cost of living? And what you find is anyone who earns over $35,000 a year is a one percenter. The United States is virtually an entire nation of one percenters. We've become so rich, we've forgotten what poverty is. Right. And, I mean, by that standard, I guess I'm just outside the 1%. I do work in radio, guys. so You're, you're, yeah. a, you're a 5 percent Right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. What I, I kind of want to continue the story I hear, and I hear it on both sides. It's almost the populist story. It's like the good old days were so good, and what's happened since then is the rich are getting richer, the poor are getting poorer, and the middle cl- class is getting squeezed, and uh, the, the government, of course, must step in to ameliorate all these things. But let's focus in on one thing in particular. Has there actually been stagnation for the so-called middle class in terms of their wages or what they're taking home? The rich are, in fact, getting richer. Also, though, the poor are getting richer. And I'll leave it to Anthony to describe what's happened to the middle class. Yeah, the middle class, in a sense, are disappearing. They're becoming richer. So, so what's happening is everybody's moving up the scale. We, when we talk about the middle class disappearing, people imagine that the middle class are becoming poor. That, that's not it. The middle class are becoming rich. The poor are now moving up to the middle class. But I think one of the things that, that you touched on is this thing that and politicians keep repeating it, that wages have stagnated since the 1970s. And there's an interesting story here. If you look at adjusting for inflation, hourly wages in the United States. What you find is it is actually correct that hourly wages are about the same today adjusted for inflation as they were in the mid-1970s. But that's 
disingenuous because a person's, a, a worker's pay is not simply his wage, it's also his employer-paid benefits. Hmm. So contributions to retirement fund, employer uh, contributions to health care, these sorts of things, um, time off, paid vacation, all of that. When you put the whole package together, the correct term is compensation. And if you look at compensation hourly from 1970 to the present, what you find is the average hourly worker adjusted for inflation has a compensation that's 50% higher than it was in the 1970s. So what's going on here is over time, yes, workers are taking home more. They're not taking it home in the form of a paycheck, but in the form of employer-paid benefits. Now, why is that so? Hmm. It's so because that's the way the government has incented us. They have made the employer-paid benefits tax-free where while the wages are taxed. So if my employer comes to me and says, you can have another $1,000 uh, this year, do you want it in take-home pay, or do you want it in wages, or do you want it in uh, contributions to your health care? Well, if I take it in contributions to my health care, I get the full 1000 If I take it as wages, the government takes 25%, and I only walk home with seven fifty. So, of course, I'll take it in the form of benefits. But these politicians that say that wages have stagnated are completely ignoring the benefits. Yeah, exactly. And it's amazing to me. It's it's old truism of that the government, you know, will break somebody's leg and then go, oh, now the solution is to give them a crutch. They're, they're constantly creating more problems with their interventions. Yeah. They call for a new intervention. You should be thankful. You should be thankful they're giving you a crutch. Right. It's like, well, don't break my leg in the first place. Yeah. It's, it's very frustrating. Now, I, I will have to confess to both of you gentlemen uh, that I occasionally get possessed by uh, Bernie Sanders. Like, it just... It just comes out of me. Um, I don't know if it'll happen anytime soon. Excuse me. James, Anthony, if that's your names, you know, I'm, I'm hearing all this right now. You're talking about the middle class are getting richer. The, the poor are, in fact, getting richer. Everybody's getting richer. You're calling me the 1%. You're calling America the 1%. We're not going to redistribute to the whole world. But I, I want to focus because there's a presidential campaign coming up. And I've made it clear, and I want to make it clear to both of you, that Donald Trump is a racist. Donald Trump is a sexist. He's a cheat. He's a con man. He's a xenophobe. He's a nativist. But the worst thing I could call Donald Trump, and it's clear, he's maybe not as much as he likes to be, but he's a billionaire. And billionaires are the scum of the earth. I mean, I've heard you two before. Somebody, a staffer brought it to my attention. What are you defending billionaires for, you know, swimming around with their gold? Bernie, I think we've got to come to terms with the fact that you owned three houses and made a million dollars last year on book royalties of all things. And I'm here to tell you, normal people who write books don't make a million dollars in royalties. So you're doing quite well. And I have to wonder... What are you complaining about? Well, sir, uh, number one, I don't like your tone. I don't like you airing my <laughs> dirty laundry like this. <laughs> no, but in, it's, it is an amazing thing going on where it's just the label of billionaire. And we saw one today, Michael Bloomberg, say, I'm not running for president. Um, it's, it's like, I think a billionaire is something to aspire to. It may not ever happen. But it's almost like even the guys that voted for Trump, I've heard them say, if you make a billion dollars, you, you must have trampled on somebody's rights, you, you're suspect in some way. Where do you think this comes from? Yeah, well, if, if they have trampled on someone right, someone's rights, I mean, that's clearly something that's a role for government to step in and, and, and prevent that. The proper role of government is preventing people from harming each other. But largely speaking, 
almost all the billionaires that you would point to off the top of your head are billionaires who have made their money because we have voluntarily handed it to them. We've handed it to them because we like their products, their iPhones or their Amazon Prime or whatever it is. We like their products more than we like the dollars in our pockets. So we hand it over. Now consider, that's a very different dynamic than the dynamic that Bernie presents. The dynamic that Bernie presents is that he and his 534 other representatives and senators will forcibly take money from us. Now, you know, of the two, dealing with a Jeff Bezos across the table or a Bernie Sanders across the table, I'd much rather have the Jeff Bezos because I have the ability to stand up and walk away at any point. With Sanders, not the case. Right. I mean, I, I like it being voluntary more than being forced. And I, I almost worry that people worry too much about, say, income or wealth inequality when they should be really worrying about political inequities in well, terms of power. Yeah, there's something to think about here. When we talk about inequality, we look at the dollars, and that's the wrong thing to look at. The dollars are simply a tool that we use to transfer ownership of goods and services. It's the goods and services that matter. So I ask my students, I have, you know, 40 of them in front of me, I say, raise your hand if you have over $100,000 in the bank. And, of course, there are no hands that go up. I said, well, there's some people that have that, and clearly if you look at the dollars, there's inequality. Now, raise your hand if you've got a cell phone in your pocket. Every hand goes up. And look at this. If you look at the distribution of goods and services, you see much more equality than if you look at the distribution of dollars. But it's the goods and services that matter, not the dollars. Right, so people are almost consuming at a more equal rate, no matter how much money they might yes. have in the bank. We don't use the word inequality as a proxy for the word poverty. And poverty really is a problem. It's something we should be addressing. It's something we should be concerned with. But how many people are actually poor? And inequality has nothing to say in the answer to that question. Right, right. And, well, we got to hit a break here real quick. Folks, again, we're talking to Anthony Davies and James Harrigan. They are the host of Words and Numbers. It's a fantastic podcast. Great to listen to every week. I mean, we're already on episode, what is it, 107? Um, Something like that. 108 comes out tomorrow. 108 comes out tomorrow. Wonderful. And I guess folks can subscribe pretty much anywhere podcasts are available. That's right. Awesome. Well, here, we got to hit a quick break. Coming back, I, I want to address your hatred of the poor. It's just blatant. <laughs> um, and other topics. Uh, we'll be right back, folks. Joey Clark. Welcome back, folks. And we're talking to the minds behind Words and Numbers. Great podcast. It's been out for a little while now. But if you're wanting to learn about 
I think sound economics and political perspectives taking on the day's events. You know, I've been trying to run away from uh, partisanship as much as I can on conservative talk radio, and I think you two gentlemen uh, achieve that really well. Um, That's high praise. Thank you. Thank you, Joey. Yeah, it's uh, it's difficult to do these days, but I like being surprised. Like I, I know a little bit where y'all are coming from, but I also do like the the fresh take that isn't you know just rooting for one team or another. But after saying these nice things, I have to throw some spice in with that sugar. What is with you guys and hating the poor? Like I heard you earlier, Anthony, at the beginning of the show, saying minimum wage doesn't help the poor. I mean, what is that nonsense? Yeah, well, I think what's necessary here, this is one of the things that politicians love to do. They love to tell us half a story. The full story on the minimum wage is, yeah, it does help people. It helps people who keep their jobs. It harms others. It harms those who lose their jobs. So the way that we imagine it is that the minimum wage is is weighing in on the battle between workers and employers, forcing the employers to pay more. Actually, what the minimum wage does is it weighs in on a battle between workers, taking pay out of the hands of what some workers and putting it into the hands of others. So if you say, yeah, if you keep your job, sure, you'll earn $15 an hour. If you lose your job, you'll go from seven twenty-five to zero. Right. And I guess we saw this most recently in New York City, especially with fast food workers. Yeah. Absolutely. You're starting to see it in various cities. And, you know, people ask me, what do you think about the minimum wage? I think it's a, it's a horrible idea. It hurts the very people you're looking to help. However, I think raising the minimum wage on a city-by-city basis is great. It's great because it will finally show people what economists have been saying for a long time. When we raise the national minimum wage, we've got no other example to point to because everybody has gone up. But if you let this rise city by city, we can point to Seattle, we can point to New York City, we can point to other cities and say, look, look at what happened to unemployment here. Right, and now they want to pass laws that you can't fire people without good cause, essentially want to unionize fast food workers. Right. Now, I can tell you immediately what that's going to do. Hmm. It's going to put weight on the side of the scale that causes employers not to hire them in the first place. Germany has this problem. It's very difficult to, to fire workers in Germany. I know one company in particular, I worked with, this, with them some years ago, they would hire Germans, not through the German company, but through an American company. They'd fly the Germans over here to the U.S. and fly them home on holidays and put them up in hotels. And I'm thinking, why are you doing this? Just have them work in Germany. They went through all of that because if they brought the workers to the United States and hired them here, they were covered under U.S. law, which made it easier for them to fire if they didn't work out. <laughs> so what you're, what's happening in Germany is German employers are hesitant to hire workers precisely because you can't get rid of them. Right. It could be you're stuck with a worker that isn't performing, and now I mean, you've got essentially a cost that isn't bearing you anything. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly right. It's amazing. Actually, I can make this a little more uh, a little more concrete for people, because most people seem to think if you ask random Americans... How many, what percentage of the workforce makes minimum wage? The answer you're most likely to get is about 30%. Hmm. And that's, that's wrong by orders of magnitude. Less than 3% of the American workforce presently makes minimum wage. Less than 3%. Wow. So the real, the real question is how is it that 97% of the American workforce or more has managed to eclipse minimum wage without legislation mandating it? And the correct answer, the obvious answer, the easy answer, is that they're simply worth more than minimum wage. So if you want to make more than minimum wage, it's probably time to boost your skill set. 
figure out how you could be more valuable to an employer. Well, I mean, that's my own experience working. I started off in this job at minimum wage, and I wasn't—I didn't have a show. I just—I answered phones. But then you pay your dues, you show you have value to a certain company, and, hey, your wages go up and your opportunities beyond just the, the monetary gain go up. And I've, I've seen it with so many people in my life, and I, I find it odd that every job must be a, a breadwinning job, must be a living wage. It's like... Why? There's all sorts of different reasons people might go for a lower-wage job for experience, or maybe they're a teenager and they're trying to help out for their bank account or with the family. Right. I think that's exactly right. And it's, I think, very heartening right, that most Americans want people to make a good wage. Right. The real problem is, is that politicians enter the picture and capitalize on, on those good feelings. And before you know it, Everybody's convinced that somebody else isn't making a living, but the numbers don't bear it out. What is with this? How would y'all take on what I would? It's clearly part of the anti-capitalist mentality. Uh, it's a shibboleth you might hear of. Their businesses are putting profits over people, and, and to me, in my understanding of how business works, that just sounds like nonsense. Yeah, I think it's important to remember that businesses themselves are people. What I mean by that is a business is the manager, the owner, the stockholders. Those are all people. So you're never, you're never putting profits over people. It's all people along the route. Now, the question is, you know, I'm a business. I need to, I need to spend my money. How am I going to do that? One way to do it is to pay workers. Another way to do it is to pass money on to stockholders, which encourages them to invest in other businesses. Another way to do it is to pass cost savings on to consumers. No matter where those dollars go, they're going to people. Right. And I mean, not to mention, we've touched on this earlier, you know, these billionaires come into the world because they provided something beyond just the money. Like, and Paul McCartney's a billionaire because he's created incredible music that people enjoy. And Bezos took a bookstore idea and has made it into a, essentially a retail empire. And yeah, I, I, and I think you've, you've, you've touched on something important. That the average person doesn't think anything of the NFL player who, makes, who has a multi-million dollar salary or the rock star that has a multi-million dollar salary or the movie star has a multi-million dollar salary. You don't think anything of that. And we tend not to think anything of it because we understand what those people do. The average person doesn't understand what a CEO does. And so when they hear, here's a CEO that has a $10 million salary, the assumption is, well, this guy must have just stolen it from the workers or customers or whoever it is. It, the problem is us. We don't understand what those people are doing. Right. And they usually have very specialized knowledge or they yeah. have the, the initiative to put things together. I mean, and it's the way I think of it. I'm not bearing the risk of running a radio station right now. Like That's uh, right. Like I'm getting At a guaranteed point, paycheck. At any point, you could stand up and say, I've had enough of this, I'm going somewhere else. I'm getting another job and going to another city, and you can, you can do that. If you were the owner of the station, there's, you can't do that, right? The, the most right. you can do is shut the thing down, and that involves selling all the assets. This is going to take a year if you're lucky. You're, you're tied up there. You're, you're bearing a risk that the workers aren't bearing. I think it's worth mentioning as well, when we talk about CEOs, we talk about multi-million dollar salaries. The average CEO in the U.S., earns about $200,000, $250,000. The multi-millions are the, the 1% of the 1%. It, it's like looking at 
all football players from high school up through NFL and saying they're all earning NFL salaries. That's not the case. The NFL salaries are going to a fraction of a fraction of a percent. So, too, with CEO salaries. Well, and also, say, like, with the the Jeff Bezos divorce upcoming might actually be a good lesson for people. And that, okay, he's a billionaire, but it's not, again, like he's sitting on piles of gold like some greedy dragon or Scrooge McDuck. That, That money's not liquid, per se, right? No, that's right. Jeff Bezos can no more liquidate his holdings than any other billionaire can. Most of his money is tied up in Amazon stock, and if he were forced to liquidate it, it would absolutely crash the market in Amazon. So, you know, we have to be realistic about these things. But I I think the example you you just gave a second ago is the absolute perfect one. People, when they think about billionaires, they think about Scrooge McDuck sitting atop a giant pile of gold, laughing and rubbing his hands together in an evil, maniacal way. But the simple fact of the matter is, is that I have given Jeff Bezos and all the Amazon shareholders a whole lot of money over the years. Why? because it was worth it to me. They offered me products that I wanted and could afford. And it was all voluntary. Bernie Sanders, on the other hand, comes looking for me every year or so with the complete battery of arms of the state pointed right at me. And there's absolutely nothing I can do to say no to him. I can walk away from Jeff Bezos literally any minute of any day. Well, and uh, this could possibly, an idea came to me as I was listening to y'all's Words and Numbers episode on billionaires, but as I was watching the, the recent campaign news, by far, Bernie Sanders is leading the Democratic nominee pack with, in terms of how much money he has raised, and that's money given to him voluntarily. So should we right. like have some big convoluted theory on why Bernie Sanders, where, this inequality in the Democratic race for the presidency, where did Bernie get all that money? Well, Bernie gets the money the same way every politician does, by pandering to his base. And his base is very responsive. Now, Anthony and I are of a mind that he should be fully able to do that anytime he wants, as long as he's not forcing anyone's hand. So if people willingly and cheerfully give him the money, hey, Bernie, go nuts, right? right? We'll be here to explain why that's a bad idea, as we think generally it's a bad idea to give money to any politician. But if that's what people choose to do with their money, it's literally no different uh, to me than if they want to give it all to their family cat. Right. And now I want to do something because this is just fun. Um, I'm not even going to ask a question. I'm just going to say one term and have you all react to it. Green New Deal. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) World-class nonsense. (laughs) So it's, uh, I've heard you, you refer to it as some kind of fruit, right, James? Or is it anti? I, I think it's world-class foolishness. World-class. Some of the estimates are coming out now that it would cost $93 trillion or so Ooh. to fund this nonsense. But the, the simple fact of the matter is people talk about the Green New Deal all the time. What they don't realize is that it's not actual legislation. It's a sense of the House of Representatives, which means nothing. So nobody's actually proposed that we do this, which is just as well, because the first question you would have to ask if proposing to do this is, what does this cost? And that question was never once asked. That's how you know it's not a serious thing. Well, and it's uh, it, uh, here's how I view climate change. I, I find the science 
fairly compelling, but my it, I'll grant that just for the sake of argument. I'm not a scientist. I'm having, at a certain level, having to trust people who study this stuff. But my response to that is, assuming the science is correct and that we're going to have issues the more we pump CO2 into the atmosphere, why does that necessitate government taking action and taking control of almost every aspect of our lives? Why can't, say, market forces and entrepreneurship solve this problem? Well, the, the, the co-founder of Greenpeace pointed out, I think it was yesterday, maybe the day before, that if we enacted the Green New Deal as it's written, actually what would result would be wholesale death and destruction around the world. So it doesn't really solve the problem that it seeks to solve. Really, what they're doing is striving to make a political statement that we have to do a lot more than we're doing. And it's really preparing the ground for later political assaults. In short, it's no different from any other aspirational statement made by a politician. But don't, don't think for a second that any of this is serious. Um, when we look at it, I think you're exactly right. Anthony and I agree with you more or less. We're not experts on the science. What we do know is that this has been radically politicized and the blind eye has been turned to the economics of it. And if you radically politicize things and then ignore the economics, trust us, you won't get a good outcome. Well, and when I looked at the the Paris Accord that, say, President Trump pulled out of, Barack Obama initiated, I was looking, hey, this is not just climate science. They're doing econometric, like, modeling over nearly a century's worth of time, and there's no way that's going to be exactly accurate. Like, it's yeah, yeah, there's no way it's going to be exactly accurate. And, you know, I, I am an econometrician. But I haven't looked at, at the science data, and even if I did, not being a climate scientist, I'm not quite sure I'd be interpreting correctly. So my tendency is, is not to say too much about climate science. But I will say this as an economist. What I've never heard in the climate science discussion is what the upside is. Mm. Now, I'm not saying that there's not a downside, but there's got to be an upside. For example, okay, global warming goes up. You lose a lot of real estate in Florida because the oceans rise. On the other hand, I in Pittsburgh and my fellow citizens would welcome with open arms global warming because it's really cold in Pittsburgh. <laughs> Similarly, there's all sorts of land in Canada that's uninhabited because of the cold. That would become habitable and become arable. And that's on the plus side. Now, I'm not suggesting that the plus outweighs the minus. But what I am saying is if you don't show me an analysis that includes in a sober way both sides of the equation – then I've got nothing to conclude other than what's motivating your report must be, must be political considerations because science would look at both sides of the equation. Exactly. And it also, it's almost like we're looking at too large a scope, like we're looking at the whole globe or we're looking at a lot of these questions, too, on the national level. Healthcare as a whole package deal. Education as a whole package deal. Well, if you unpack healthcare, you unpack education, you unpack the climate effects over the whole globe, not to mention just the country, there's going to be all sorts of different trade-offs for particular people and interests, right? There is. And that's what politicians absolutely cannot stand to talk about is trade-offs. They live in a world in which they offer unicorns and rainbows. They're just going to give you things at no cost. Now, of course, the things cost something, but they don't want you to think about that. Because if you thought about that, you might not elect them. <laughs> and so, consequently, any time you see anything offered in which there's only one side, a plus or a minus, you know that the thing is politicized. There's always a trade-off. And you should be immediately suspicious whenever you hear the word free escaping a politician's lips. 
So free, free health care, free college. Well, that's just free to the people who use the resource. Somebody else, somebody who doesn't use the resource, is going to be on the hook for the bill. And politicians are so good, American politicians especially, at promising free things that we presently have a $22 trillion debt because we've been giving away free things for quite some time. And now there's even the suggestion in AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I can't stand her ideas, but I love her name. Uh, I just do. It just <laughs> it's a good off, name, isn't it? rolls off the tongue so well. But she even has kind of said, well, we, we debt finance wars. Why? We'll just pay for it. We'll print the money. We'll, we'll, we'll create it out of the computer. Is there actually, because she claims she studied economics at Boston University, I believe. I mean, is there some theory out there these days that kind of backs up this idea? Oh, yeah. Print more money. Uh, we'll debt finance everything. Monetize the debt. Uh, where is yeah. that? Yeah. This is this is what's called modern monetary theory, and I will put the theory word in quotes. This isn't <laughs> something that's actually taught in schools, not in the main, not in mainstream economics by any means. But what it boils down to is the idea that uh, there would be no ramifications to printing money. So in other words, it's back to this idea of there, you can have some free lunch here. Just print the money and use this money that we print to pay for things. Well, what it's, what it's ignoring is the fact that you can't just print money without causing inflation. So as, as I print more dollar bills, the existing dollar bills become worth less. That's the money that's sitting in your retirement fund, in your checking account, in your pocket. All those dollars start to lose their purchasing power as I print money. So really what happens when the government prints money is it's doing it's having the exact same effect as if it reached into your savings account, into your checking account, into your wallet and took money. It's it's not taking the physical dollars, but it's taking the purchasing power. Right. Right. Inflation is in fact a tax and it's a tax that government controls through monetary policy. And it's, uh, I think y'all touched on this in one of your episodes. You know, I've thought about, uh, like, I was in living with some folks that were literally mining Bitcoin a few years ago when that was still feasible uh, to do with, like, a little ASIC computer. And, you know, we under, I started to think about the proof-of-work concept, uh, you know, proving and that you solved a particular algorithm in order to encrypt, you know, the transactions going on a certain amount of time and maybe step back and go, well, I guess the current monetary system is like proof of violence, proof of taxation, uh, that the it, what backs it is the taxing power of the United States. I don't think that's what actually backs the dollar. Uh, and that's a good place to start and end kind of the conversation. Uh, where is the value of our money these days? I think a lot of people don't even understand why our money is valuable in the first place. The only the reason money is valuable is because you can walk into a bar, put it down, and somebody will hand you a beer. Yeah, That's what makes it valuable. The only thing that makes dollars valuable is the fact that people are willing to give you goods and services in exchange for them. And the more dollars you print, the more you take the value of the existing goods and services and spread it over a larger number of pieces of paper. And consequently, each one of those pieces of paper ends up being able to purchase less. In the end, the only thing that makes anything valuable is what somebody will give you in exchange for it. And that's true of dollars, diamonds, cigarettes, and liquor. So the more dollars you have, the less each one of them will be worth. It's just that simple. Right, right. And now I think one of the biggest problems when I look at the political landscape is both... And I, I don't mean this in like a, a pejorative way, but it is true ignorance of 
basic political ideas and basic economic ideas. So I want to give you all both the floor. And again, folks, we're talking to Anthony Davies and James Harrigan. They are the co-hosts of Words and Numbers. It's a fantastic podcast. I think that's a can go a long way to helping educate people if you just listen to the podcast every week. But if you were to suggest, say, like gateways into learning a little bit about basic economic thought, basic political thought, to give people a foundation, what would y'all suggest? Well, on the economic side, I would say the work of some economists is actually a lot more accessible than you might think. So log on to YouTube and watch some Milton Friedman. Check out some Tom Sowell. You could actually just sit back and watch these things in three- and five-minute chunks and get up to speed on standard economic theory in pretty short order. Politics is a little tougher because, you know, it comes out of a long line of philosophy stretching all the way back to Plato, and it's probably best not to start with Plato. But you could start with the, the American founders who write in pretty clear, cogent English, and I would suggest giving Thomas Jefferson a look. It's always a good place to start if you want to understand what freedom really is. Well, and I'm always astounded when I say revisit Jefferson. Like, there's one letter of his to his friend William Short that sticks in my mind, where he he almost creates this amalgamation of, like, Seneca and Epictetus and Epicurus and Jesus and... Socrates and all these great philosophers to tell his friend this is this is what my morality is and this is who I've learned from and it makes me wonder do we have people like that running the country today like no we absolutely do not yeah it's a it's a shame it's a shame yeah, more more stupidity well is that I think about that a lot is that a function of us becoming more democratic in the the literal sense of majority rules it's just a pure popularity contest I think that's got a lot to do with it and it is kind of sad I think what really has more to do with it is how we've elevated politics over time it's become this team sport that determines everything in our lives And really, if you think about it, Thomas Jefferson was president of the United States of America. He designed his own gravestone. And on his gravestone, he lists his accomplishments. Uh, Author of the Declaration of Independence, author of the Notes on the State of Virginia, and founder of the University of Virginia. President didn't make the list. Well, and I actually had that thought about his gravestone when I was in front of the Jefferson Memorial in D.C. a few years back, wondering, would Jefferson like to see his own face, you know, cast in bronze, standing, you know, 40 feet tall? Like, it just, it didn't seem right to the spirit of the man, in a way. I think he'd be amused by it, all things considered. The, The real horror for him would be how controlling the government has become, how none of us at this point can think of a single moment in our lives that remain unregulated. Well, in a nation in Lincoln's terms conceived in liberty, liberty is dissipated. And I think that's what would horrify the founders, broadly speaking. I think they would look at the country and be amazed that it was still here at all. So it's not all downside. But this way that we have elevated politics to encompass every single thing we do all the time, that's really our problem. I I tend to agree. Well, there's a, I can't remember exact section, but there's a prophetic idea of uh, tyranny or soft despotism, as uh, Alexis Tocqueville talks about. And if people go back and read that passage where he talks about a government 
treating the people like a, a parent treating a child, but you're trying to keep the child in perpetual childhood. It, it's very prophetic what he foresaw if despotism ever came to, say, a democracy like ours. Yeah, I think you have to look at the infantilization of the American citizen as part and parcel of the problem of government. Absolutely. And I, th- and I think this, this goes two ways. It's not just the politicians more, being more than happy to infantilize the, the people, but a lot of the people themselves would prefer it. Uh, having freedom is, is, can be uncomfortable because you have to take responsibility for, for the choices that you make. And I think we have, we have grown to a point at which we have a decent number of people who, who are of a mind that they would rather give up their freedom in exchange for allowing the government to take care of them. And that is that they've chosen to infantilize themselves. That's not consistent with, with a free and healthy society, I don't think. I, I completely agree. And the more I look at my own life, look at other people's lives, there's nothing like individual responsibility, taking initiative to change one's own life, even if it's just stopping destructive behavior. It's not even doing something immensely positive. It goes such a long way compared to any sort of program, government or not, coming in and trying to fix people's problems for them. Not to say we shouldn't have that. Of course we should. We do live in a community. But I, I, it is tough. It's difficult to have liberty. But I think it was given as the cornerstone of our society for good reason. And uh, I... I think, number one, that has been, the door's been shut on liberty in the economic realm for the most part. We luckily still have the First Amendment and many other rights, but the economic liberty seemed to have been thrown out. Like, there's yeah, no- I, don't, I don't think it's been thrown out, but I think clearly the door is not nearly as wide open as it once was. Right. But I think there's, there's a useful lesson here. If we look across the world at different countries and, and ask questions about them, how much economic liberty is there in this country, and what kind of outcomes do you get? And what you find is not in every case, but in the vast majority of cases, in countries in which there is more economic liberty, people's incomes are higher, the income inequality is lower, gender inequality is lower, environmental outcomes are better, child labor is lower, all these sorts of measures that you use to to indicate a good and healthy society are highly correlated with economic freedom. Amen. Well, and with that, gentlemen, we're out of time. That hour went really quickly. Uh, Again, folks, check out Words and Numbers. Listen more to James and Anthony here. It's great stuff, and I I wish we just could have been in the same room. This has been an engaging conversation. Probably could keep going for a few hours here, but thank you, both of you gentlemen, for joining me this evening. Thank you. Thank you, Joey. Next time, Alabama. Amen to that. Alabama, it's a good place. Come on down. Come on down. We'll, We'll come soon. All right, folks, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back tomorrow night. What am I going to do? Well, I'm not sure, but that's the fun of it. Until then, ta-ta. Joey Clark.